In order to understand the New Testament, we must see the story together. Now, uh, I've been a Christian now for 47 years. Uh, Some of you have heard my story. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I didn't go to church as a kid. If you'd asked me if I was if I believed in God, I would have said, sure, I'm an American. Doesn't everybody? Um, I was asked to write my religious philosophy in my senior high school <laughs> humanities class, and I went out on, a, uh, on the golf course next to where we lived, and I sat under the stars, and I thought I came up with the most revolutionary idea in the history of mankind. I said, everybody's worshiping the same God. He's just got different names. And I thought that was brand new. I never heard that. I wrote that up in my philosophy. But if you ever were to ask me, God at most was way over here, and I was over here. Never heard the gospel, never had anybody that ever told me they were a Christian for 22 years of my life in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, I'm sure I met Christians, but nobody ever told me they were Christian. Nobody ever shared the gospel until I was 22, and the lady sitting right there was the first one, oh, darn it, that ever told me they were a Christian. And she shared this one redemptive story with me. And I became a follower of Jesus 47 years ago. Now, one of the first things I did was I went and bought a Bible. Nobody told me to go buy a Bible, but I just did that because I thought, well, you're, you know, that'd probably be something good to do. Now, back in those days, any of you that are old enough will know the term the living Bible. Raise your hand if you're willing to. Look at that. Gosh. And I got a living Bible. It had a green cover. I kept that for years and years and years. And to me at that point, the Bible was like a playbook in those early years of my Christianity. It was a guide to me. I would open it up and I'd look for direction. It almost had a mystical quality to it, honestly, that, you know, there were times I'd I'd read about or hear stories where people would go like that and point, and then that would be the exact verse that they needed. Um, But it was a guidebook. I remember um, early on in our, in our marriage, um, Beth was late and we were afraid, I was afraid she was pregnant. I went to go meet with this gentleman that was leading us in Bible study at the time. I was panicked. I was not in any place ready for being a dad. And I shared that with him and he opened up the scriptures and he read a verse that's very familiar to you all. And we know that in all things, God works for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Closed the Bible, and I was okay. Early on, I learned the power of one verse to transform my heart like that. It was a, play, it was a playbook for me. But as I got further into my journey, It became more of a reference book. I was really challenged to look at this and study it. And a couple of books that really helped me in that were one of this book by William Hendricks and Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And this is all about digging more deeply into the Bible first as a verse, maybe then as a, uh, a chapter or a, a book. It could be a word study. 
But they shared a story in the beginning of this book about a professor in the, tw- in the 19th century at Harvard who was a naturalist, and he would sit his students in front of a dead fish in an examine plate, in an examination plate, and he would say, okay, look at that fish for two hours and write down all of your observations. And they would do that, and they would be done, and he, then he would come back the next day, and they'd be all proud of all that they'd discover, and he'd say, okay, now share with me what you found. And he'd say, okay, do it for another two hours. They'd look at him puzzled. They'd do that same thing. He'd come back the next day. He did that for two weeks. 28 hours they stared at that fish. Thinking after two, they discovered everything that was there and realizing in the journey, they hadn't hardly even seen anything. Howard Hendricks began a Bible study methods class with Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in the remotest parts of the earth. You, you receive power and be my witnesses. He said, I want 75 observations out of that verse, one verse. And it challenged me to observe the scriptures, to not look very quickly, but to go slow, to become like a Sherlock Holmes. You know, Sherlock Holmes wasn't a great interpreter, even though everybody thought, how did he figure this out? And what what was his famous line to Watson? Elementary, my dear Watson. Why? Because he observed what was there. And when you observe long enough, it becomes very clear, elementary, what's going on. And see, we in the United States in particular go way too fast on Bible study. This book really challenged me. Another book like this one, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, which is just some overview thoughts by Max Anders. Another book that helped me a lot was this one, How to Read the Bible for All This Work. This is a seminal book for seminary students written by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. But they taught me more about how to study the Bible as a reference book. And then one day, I was reading this book, Biblical Preaching by Haddon Robinson. This is the seminal book for expository preaching, still used today in most seminaries, written, when was it, 80, 1980. In this book, he talks about ideas, that an idea has two components. An idea has a subject, not the English subject of a sentence, but a subject, what the idea is about. And then it has a complement, which explains what the author is saying about that idea. So if I said, I played golf on Saturday, that statement is an idea. And it's made up of a subject. And what am I talking about? When I played golf. The complement is on Saturday. Put those two together and you have an idea. And you can only do three things with an idea. You can prove it, you can explain it, or you can ap- apply it. But he began to t- began, 
began to under, help me understand that the Bible is a book of ideas, sentences that turn into paragraphs, that turn into chapters, that turn into whole books, that turn into whole New Testament and Old Testament, and you can come up with the subject of any of those. Not just a sentence, but a paragraph. Not just a paragraph, but a chapter. Not just a chapter, but a whole book. And I began to study the Bible that way, and it revolutionized the way I studied the Bible. Because all of a sudden, what I felt like I was doing was I was trying to get into the mind of the author and the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about here? And what are you saying? And when the light would go on in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to Paul. I get it. I get what he's talking about there. Okay? So this book was extremely, extremely helpful. But then further along, I began to discover that the Bible was a story. One of the books that helped me, and I forgot to bring this one by uh, uh, Matt Chandler, The Explicit Gospel. It talks about the gospel is the gospel from the air and the gospel from the ground. You see this as a story, and it began to be mentored from afar by men like um, Tim Keller to see this as a story. It's a, it's a book of ideas that has one big idea, and that big idea is a story. It's a redemptive story. That's what we've described it as, right? And that changes a lot of the way I began to look at the Bible. In a much broader way, Gabe and I were talking this week, he remembers the moment when he started to see the Bible as a story. So too often we don't look at it that way. And then it became the meta narrative. And a meta-narrative is something that overarches all of life and explains life. That story wasn't just a story, it's the story. Now, that was my journey with the Bible. What I'd like for you to do now at your tables is use those labels, identify your current perspective on the Bible, and then describe to the group how your perspective on the Bible has changed, just like I did. So you do that for several minutes now, please. Use those labels. What's your current perspective on the Bible? And how has that changed over the years? How many of you all have ever heard of the name Donald Miller? If you've heard of the name Donald Miller, raise your hand. How do you know, what do you know about Donald Miller? Wrote Blue Like Jazz. Story. Story. Do you know where, the, and he has a company called Story Brand. But do you know, after his very, very successful book, Blue Light Jazz, that uh, he was in Seattle watching soap operas on a daily basis? He'd been very successful, financially successful, watching soap operas until some director producers from L.A. came and, and we're going to talk to him about making a movie out of Blue Light Jazz about his life. And they said, tell us the story of your life. And he said, what do you mean? Well, every story, everybody has a story. And he, for the first time in his life, heard that a story is about a character who wants something and has to fight to get it. That's his definition of a story. And he began to understand how when you lose your story, you lose your meaning for a living. And, that's and he diagnosed self, himself to go, I've lost my story. 
And he wrote the book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, and he talks about that, and he talks about his journey to finding his story. Is it your favorite book? Oh, yeah. It's a great book. So the point of that is, story is critical. Seeing, a story, seeing the Bible as a story illuminates our place in the story. That's what stories do. They illuminate our lives. That's what we love about stories on the screen because they show us something about life and about our place in the story. So seeing the Bible as a story or a meta-narrative, it changes the way you study the Bible. The first question you should always be asking when you look at the scriptures is, what does this mean? passage add to the story? And secondly, what does the story inform me about this passage? So I go from minute to big story and big story to the minute. And it, without that understanding, and that perspective, it changes the way you look at the Bible. And it also then changes the questions, as I just mentioned, that you ask when you're studying the Bible. Now, my heart is to see men and women captured by the beauty of the Bible. I'm an engineer. I didn't have one English class my entire college career. So it's not because I'm an English major that I love the Bible. It's because the Bible is so beautiful and it's so accessible, but it takes some work. And I'm an analytical guy and I love that about the scriptures. And so just recently, I heard somebody talking about context. I read this book Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, excellent book. And it talks about how we in our culture misunderstand the story because we put our culture into the first century or into the, you know, into the Middle Eastern culture of the 1500s or whatever, uh, B.C. So very helpful. And then I took another class and we read this book. It's a thick book on grasping God's word. It's simply hermeneutical Bible study methods. You don't have to be a Greek Hebrew scholar to love the scriptures, understand the scriptures, and be able to explain the scriptures. In fact, I've known many guys that know those two languages and they can't explain the scriptures. It gets in the way. So I'm encouraging you, see this as an incredible resource that you don't have to be a seminary student to unpack it. You become like Sherlock Holmes and God will show you things that will marvel people and your own spirit as to what you see. Okay, so. Now, when we ask that question about what does this passage add to the story, we understand that there are two authors to every passage that we're looking at. 
right? There's the human author and there's the Holy Spirit. Both who are purposeful, both who have intention, both who wrote with authorial intention, if you remember that from, the, from last year. They had a purpose when they wrote and they picked things on purpose to contribute to their overarching purpose. And that's both the Holy Spirit who was inspiring the human writers through their creativity and minds to write perfectly. So we want to continue to probe in what does this passage add to the story? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire that author to include this? And until we really get that, we're never going to really understand the passage fully because that's, we'll see it just in its minor context without its broader story, right? Okay. Now, so we want you to see the Bible is a story and it's a story about what? Subject, redemption. That's why we call it one redemptive story. If you were gonna say, what is the Bible about? It is about redemption. Who is the Bible about? Entire Bible is one redemptive story with two connected parts. But okay, now again, the Bible is about what? Redemption. Say it with me. Redemption. Who's the Bible about? Who? Jesus. Jesus is who is at the center of the Bible. It doesn't mean it's not about anything else, but it isn't about me and it isn't about you. And that should be good news. The Bible is about Jesus Christ as the center of the plan of redemption, the story of redemption, the run redemptive story. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament, you're always pointing to Jesus. But when we look at the New Testament, again, we're going to think it might be easier to see Jesus, but sometimes you don't if you're not careful. So to get us in the right frame of mind tonight, you got a little exercise you're going to do now. There's a sheet of paper. Everybody get a blank sheet of paper on their, on their uh, table. Everybody get one. Okay? Turn it so it's landscape in front of you like this. Take a pen out and draw a line from the left side to the right side, right in the middle. From the left side to the right side. Take a pen out and draw that line. That's your timeline. All right, here are your instructions. Now, write the six key words from our Old Testament study across the top. Closed book, closed book. Write the key six words and put underneath those words the key ideas, people, and events and try to put them in somewhat of where they were on the timeline, assuming this is way in the past and here on the right-hand side is 430 BC. That's where we left off last year, 430 BC. So between creation and there, that's 430 BC. Got that? 
So you put these six words in their relative place on the diagram, right? If you can't remember the dates, that's okay, just try. Now you work on that individually for the next 10 minutes and then as a table, you're gonna care, you're gonna see how you did. But compare and correct and do that, okay? Go for, everybody understand the assignment? Go for it. Can I have everybody's attention for a minute? What I'd really love it if you could do this is under each key word, could you come up with what you think is the big point of that section? The one big idea under creation, under Abraham, under Sinai, under kings, under... See if you as a group now can try to come up with an idea of what that, that section was about. So go to your tables, be working on this as, at tables, if you haven't already been doing that. Okay, could I have your attention, please? You can see that because we didn't do the pre-work, I'm making you do a lot of work. We've just, we're only about halfway through the work we're doing tonight, so. But it's great. I love to hear the discussion going on at the tables. Let's, let's do this real quick. I'm sure everybody's got the six words. What's the time frame? We know the time frame for creation is a little unknown. What's the time frame for Abraham? Who can remember? About. Okay, say it louder, Kathy. Okay, the way I think in terms, because I, I like to round stuff up because it's easier to remember, 2,000 to 1,500. That's the way I think. I'm not saying it's right. It's just, it just makes it easier for me to remember. Because then Sinai is what? About what? Say it loud. I can't hear you. Yeah, it's about 15 to 1,000. The kings are 1,000 to five, 600. But I just, if you just kind of keep it at least gives you a reference to kind of remember. I'm not saying that's exact, but it, it helps me to kind of at least get them. I'm in the same, I'm in close, you know, I'm not a thousand years off. And then the exile is when? Yeah, they, they, they just had in their time on a very short period of exile, 586 to 539. And then the last one was 539 to 430 because everything's kind of getting, starting to get smushed down. But the big, pic the big pictures are those. Now, here's what I'm hoping that we could even just kind of stimulate you to start to think about. You got six, you got creation, you got Abraham, you got Sinai, you got kings, you got exile, you got temple. What does creation bring to the story? What does that block bring to the story? What, what do you think? The fall, which explains... If you're going to say, what does it bring to the story? But what does it bring to the story? What does it say? It tells why, if the story is one redemptive story, what does it bring? It, why we need redemption. Exactly. And you might even think, what was the original story and why it needs redeeming? Because redeeming means you go back to the original. That's what it means to redeem. 
to buy it back, to restore it to its original. Okay, what do we learn with Abraham? Um, and, and again, nobody's got the answer to this. This is like, let's just kind of brainstorm and have fun with it. There's not, a, there's not six answers here. We can work on this together. What about Abraham? What is Abraham? That section, not him as a person. Yeah, what, Carrie? Blessing. Okay, blessing. Covenant, yeah, but what does it bring to the story? What do we understand about the story in the Abraham section? Okay, who's going to be redeemed? That's part of it. That's a great thought there. And could be what? But finish that, Paul. Okay, the world. How the redemption, who and how it's going to come? It's going to go to the whole world, and it's going to come through. Abraham. Okay. I mean, that's like, wow, that's a great thought. Yeah. And, and it's all you could eat. Yeah. I'm not saying we have the only thing where we keep going, Michael, what were you going to say? Okay. That's right. Great. Okay. Now we go to Sinai. What does Sinai add to the story? I couldn't hear that. Rules? Yeah. What's that? Okay. God's faithfulness. Think about uh, what, what comes to my mind is what Paul says, the reason God gave the law. Paul says the reason God gave the law was to what? To say it again, Carrie. Yeah, our I think Sinai is about our resistance to the redemptive story. Why we need a redeemer? The law because we reject the law. I'm not saying that's the right answer. That's just what's come to my mind. Okay. Now, how about kings? What does kings bring to the story? Say it louder, Kathy. A human king can't do it. Okay, something about that is a part of that. This redeemer ain't going to be any normal human being or normal king. Something like, I think think that seems like we're kind of in the right trajectory, don't you? What about exile? What was that over here? The just reward for following man. Okay. The just reward for following man. We are not created for this world. Okay. What does it add to the overall redemptive story, the time of exile? God kept coming after his people. Well, see, that I think is a big part of it right there. Something about God's faithfulness and pursuit of this plan in spite of the absolute rejection of people. Uh, something that, that resonates with me right there, to me. It's like, I think we're on to something when you say that. Yeah. Yeah, it could be something like that. What God, how God responds in our unfaithfulness, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then the temple. What about the temple? What does that add to the story? Well, 
Okay. Because we, we thought we needed that temple, and he said, no, the temple's going to be flesh and not stone. So that's just what I think of when I think of the temple. So it's what, maybe something about the breadth and depth of this redemption is far more than we really are ever considered. Yeah, we can't. It's more than just earthly, something earthly. I'm, I'm not sure. But do you see how, how we're thinking? I think we're thinking really well when we're starting to go, what does that section add to the story? Not just what or the minutia of who's there, but what did the overarching section bring? Because now, see, I don't know about you all, but when you all started saying those things, something was going on in my heart. It's like, yeah, that's really good. I think we're getting it. I think that's a spirit thing. I really do. That's how when, I, when I'm studying the Bible and I feel like I'm kind of getting close, like something goes on in me in a good way. Okay, so. I think so. But now. Tonight, we're embarking on this New Testament second part of our one redemptive story. And I've said the New Testament can only be understood when? When we see them together as connected parts of the same story. That's what I want you to leave with tonight. But to help reinforce that thought, we're going to look at how the first century Christians looked at their events, okay? And so what I want you to do, oh, well, before I do that, let me, let, me, let me back up. Let me say this. I don't know if this is true of your history, but it's true of my history. For most of my um, Christianity, the vast majority of my time studying was spent in the New Testament. I treated the Old Testament as kind of... I didn't disdain it like some people do, but I just didn't spend much time in it. And, and I'd ask you to even think for a moment, just do an inventory of your life and maybe even the last couple of years. How much time have you spent in the Old Testament versus the New Testament apart from this class? Because this class, we spent a lot of time. But apart from that, how much time? Maybe go back to four or five years before that. And I think we have what... Lewis called chronological snobbery. That, that old stuff doesn't matter to us anymore because we got the good thing. We got the new wine. The old wine doesn't matter. And that really is not the right way to look at it because, again, it's one redemptive story with two connected parts, and you only understand the New Testament when you see its connection to the old. Now, what happens, this is a whole group exercise for you to, what happens when we disconnect the two Testaments to our understanding of the New Testament? What happens when we disconnect the two Testaments to our understanding of the New Testament? Everybody hear that? I wonder where the Lone Ranger rides in. That's a great thought. So that's yes, I think, I think that's a beautiful metaphor, don't you all? The beauty of the story. You, you miss the beauty. It's like it loses something. That's, I love that. I love that. Any, any other thoughts of what do we miss if we disconnect the Old Testament, the New Testament from the Old, in our understanding of the New Testament? Yeah, Jeff. Again, there's, I don't have a right answer. I'm just, so please. Yeah, so I want you just to think about that. Um, and I, I do think 
um, that answer that question, what do we lose? I do think there is a New Testament bias, at least in the United States. It's better. Like, and, and, but the problem is, that's really not the way it was intended to be. You know, you've heard me mention Tim Keller, this quote I love. We usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, with each with a moral of how we should live our lives. It's not. It's one redemptive story with two connected parts. Remember, that's the, that's the point of this whole next series. One redemptive stories with two connected parts, and you must see the New Testament in that way. You will not understand the New Testament. But we're, you're absolutely right. That's what we, but I, I'm only trying to emphasize the New Testament because we tend to think the, old, the New Testament stands on its own. That's what Michael, that's what we've all kind of said. We kind of were taught, in fact, or Matt said the same thing. We don't need the, old, the, old, the New Testament kind of stand on its own. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. Okay? Um, you all know the name N.T. Wright, and he reinforces the same idea. So the overall drama of Scripture as it stands forms a single plot with many twists and turns, nonetheless converge on a main theme. And we said, what is, what is the Bible about? Redemption. It's one redemptive story rooted in history. See, I, I think I heard Beth saying earlier that you started something about history and the way you started to see the Bible more and it, it, to kind of unpack that for the rest of the group. Was I hearing correctly? Okay, do that. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want your table to pick one of these three passages. You'll notice they're pretty long. So the first thing you ought to do is read it but I want you to look at how the speaker or the writer connects what is happening at their present time with the Old Testament and note those connections and do this as a group and be prepared to share those then with the larger group, okay? Everybody got that? We clear? You pick whichever one you want. It's up to you. Well, thank you very much. What, what part of Ireland are you from, Will? No, I'm just kidding. What part of the South are you from? Kentucky. Oh, okay. I grew up in Louisville. Oh, London. But London, London, sure. I know where London is. Yeah. How long have you been in? Nine years. So just recently. Were you always up in Kentucky then? Yeah. Lived there all my life. Uh, what yeah. brought you down here? Grandkids. Oh, okay. I, I get that. <laughs> yeah. that. That's worth a move. Yeah. I've worked the same job for 32 years. Wow. Same job for 30, so. What do they call you? Papa. Have you, do you, have you met Mark and Cindy Pearson by chance? They're both from Kentucky. They both went to UK. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, when I see you around. Okay, uh, could you wrap up your thinking right there? Um, all right, here's what I want you to recognize, and then I want to hear how it happened. When those men and women were, were explaining what was happening in their day, they went backward to the Old Testament. So to understand the present, they connected it to the Old Testament. So my, the, that's the point. To understand the New Testament, we must connect it to the Old Testament and the whole overarching story. That's what we're trying to illustrate, or that's what we're trying to prove, and I'm using these examples to prove that, that that's exactly how those people thought in the first century, okay? And in the Acts 2, 14 to 36 passage, the groups that did that, what were some ways that, the, 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 that Peter there um, connects what's going on to the Old Testament? Who did Acts 2? 
Nobody? Okay, your table? Okay, Beth gets the lone table. Come on, lead us. How did, how did Peter connect there? Now, we're going we're gonna to study that, that Pentecost time frame in, in the future, so I don't want to focus a lot on that timing and that incredible event because we need more time on that. But the point is, Peter said, you want to know what's going on? I'm going to point you to exactly where this was promised in the Old Testament. And now you'll understand exactly why that's happening. In Joel, he said, that's what's going on. What God promised in Joel. Okay, how about the Acts? Any, any other comments from y'all's table? Okay. How about the Acts 3 passage? What'd you see there? Where now you got Peter again, now he's talking to the crowd after the healing of the, uh, the beggar. What do you, who studied that? Who looked at that passage? Not studied it. Okay, got, got several tables. Okay. It's not a disconnect. It starts back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is fulfilling that. Per, great example. Anything else out of that path? Yeah, Carrie. Tell us exactly where you saw that. What was he thinking? <laughs> yeah, okay, great. And I'm sorry, Don? Yeah. So that, yes. Do you, that's and that is that passage in in uh, four and three um, twenty five, one of the most important New Testament passages because that's where it's very clear to Peter, it's very clear to the church. This is the Abrahamic covenant coming to coming to fruition. Very important passage. Okay, anything else? Out of three, good, great. Okay, anything else from Acts three? All right, how about the Acts 7 passage? Where'd you see the connection to the Old Testament there? This is Stephen now before the Sanhedrin defending. What does he say? How does he bring in the Old Testament? Who, who, who looked at Acts 7? Anybody? Okay, I got one table. Where'd you see it there? I mean, don't be so, like, any thoughts? So many, many references in that section. If you can't find them in that section, you're not looking very far because there's so many of them. Um, but what I want you to see is the repetition of the mindset. The repetition of the mindset is that we want to understand what's happening today. We go back and look at the Old Testament. Now, where did they get that perspective? I'm going to show you where I think he got that perspective. On the road to Emmaus, you all know this passage. You're very familiar with this passage, I'm sure, in Luke 24. This is after Jesus has been crucified. There's this encounter that Jesus has with two of his disciples, they're known, they're known as the Emmaus, Emmaus Road Disciples. And he clouds his, uh, uh, their recognition of him. They can't see his identity. They don't know it's Jesus. And he enters into this dialogue. And if you look at the pursuit of Jesus of these men, it's one of the most beautiful passages just to watch him open them up. Because he doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus. What are, you, what are you worried about? He asks them these questions. And then he says to them this statement. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this verse, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures concerning himself. Gosh, I wish I could have been there that day. You mean that? 
the point of this, this passage is, who is the central character of all the scriptures? Jesus explains it's him. All the scriptures focus on him. And when they began to understand that, their hearts burned within them. And that literally, that word burn is literally burning hot. And remember, I, I didn't intend to do this, but I think it's fantastically paralleled. The excitement that I felt is, I think, a taste of what they, they, that I felt tonight when we were talking about these things. I think that's a taste of what they felt. And it's the way that at times I get when I get, I think, oh, I've got what this is talking about. I think, Spirit of God, you've shown me something I never saw before, and I get it. And I get emotional, and my heart is burning. Not maybe literally, maybe it's emotionally, but maybe it actually is an adrenaline rush of some. I don't know, but I, I think I get a taste of that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> The, the, the ama- so where did they get this? I think they got it that night. And then later, if you looked at the Luke passage, it says this. When they were still talking about this things, these things, the, the disciples now up in the, in the upper room, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is, it is I, myself, touch me and see. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written with me in the law and the, and the, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And this verse is the key verse. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Where did Peter, where did um, Stephen, where did they get that understanding? Then and for the next 40 days, Jesus was taking the scriptures and showing them, this is all about me. He's a hero. He's the hero of the story. A hero is defined as a person who comes to restore what is lost, to fix what is broken, and the greater cost that they pay to do that, the greater the hero they are. So Jesus, at the cost of fellowship with the Father from all of eternity and of taking on the fullness of all of our sin, gave himself to restore what was lost and fix what is broken. He's the greatest hero that's ever been. And I love that picture of the, of my hero riding up onto the scene. Would you say that again? A, hero? a hero is the character who comes onto the scene to restore what is lost and fix what is broken. And, then the rest. and the, at a cost to himself and, or herself. And the greater the cost, the greater the hero. Saving Private Ryan. We love that movie because those men gave their lives. They were heroes because they were trying to restore what was lost, that son. Same. Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay. So, G, so my point is, he is the hero. He's who the story is about. 
the Bible is one redemptive story rooted in history with Jesus Christ as the hero. That's our overarching idea. Okay? Now, I have one passage I want to leave you with. To understand the New Testament, we must see the Old Testament. The New Testament is connected. That's my second statement. Now I want us to look at this passage. This is in your pre-work, which you weren't, which you weren't assigned to, to do for tonight, but it's such an incredible passage. Um, Paul spent more time with the Corinthian church than any other church that we know of in the New Testament. He had a deep, close relationship with this church, and this church was a mess. If you ever read 1 Corinthians, they, were, they had a, a guy sleeping with his stepmother. They had all kinds of lawsuits going on. They, had, they, they turned the Lord's Supper into an orgy. It was a mess. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians to correct the mess. At the end of the book, chapter 15, got one in a, chapter 16 is a bunch of salutations and, and greetings. End of the book, last chapter, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to conclude by reminding you of the story, the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel, which is the one redemptive story, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. You, you have placed your life on the ground redemptive story, the gospel. By this gospel, you are saved. Now, we miss something if you don't look at this passage closely. And this is a great example of where study unlocks incredible insights. Because the saved there is not past tense. The saved there is past perfect. You were and are being saved by this gospel, by the story that we've talked about tonight, men and women, you are currently being saved right now tonight. See, this is application right now. That's what I'm bringing to you. What kind of salvation? It's not the salvation for the penalty of your sins. That was dealt with on the cross, right? Once you were trusted in Jesus, that salvation was secure. It's not your future presence of sin, that's going to be eliminated in heaven. What are we being saved from right now? The present power of sin. The gospel is the way in which we experience the power of God for salvation. That's what Romans 1.16 says. To all who believe presently. So all of us in this room are struggling in some form or fashion. Some may be more than others, but we all need the gospel to be saved from the present power of sin in our lives. And so this is not just a theoretical exercise we're talking about tonight. This is life and death from the power of sin. Because he goes on to say, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, 
Otherwise, you believed in vain. Now, it doesn't mean you lose your eternal salvation. The vanity is you lose the power that God intends you and I to experience in our battle with sin today. The power that it was intended to be imparted to us is vanity. It's empty. And then he says, now I want to remind you, here's the gospel. Here's the story. For I delivered you as a first, what I received, I pass on to you. That's, that's this version. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that time. Most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. The Bible is one redemptive story rooted in history. Do you see how he's recalling history? With Jesus Christ at the center. And that gospel, men and women, is what you and I need to embrace today to experience the power that God wants us to to overcome sin. Now, I'm a rope climber. I mean, I'm a, I'm a rock climber. I do climb ropes. But this is rock climbing rope. It's very special nylon rope. It's special because it has three colors to it. Everybody see the three colors? I bought this rope to illustrate this verse. Pull on that, Keith. Every day you have an enemy that is trying to grab the gospel from your grasp. If you hold fast to it, the word is literally to suppress it so, you hold it so strongly, you're like pushing it down. And every day, somebody's trying to take that out of your hands. And when he does, you and I lose the power of the story to save us. The reason I got this rope as red, white, and uh, black is the black represents the fact that you and I still sin. You and I still struggle with sin on a day-by-day -day basis. The red, though, represents the blood of Jesus. Every red speck has a red, every black speck has a red speck because the blood of Jesus cleanses me and you from all sin every day. The white represents our identity in Christ who we are in Christ in this story. What is our part of the story? And when I stay gripped to it, I walk in that identity. I find my place in the story and I live it out. And when I don't, when that temptation comes and I let it get pulled away, I lose that identity, that sense of it. I don't lose it, but I lose my grip on it. Does that make sense? And I lose the power of it. So you see, men and women, what we're talking about is not just theoretical history. Our grasp of the story is critical to our understanding and experiencing of our power over sin that, again, every single one of us in this room struggles with. This is the power of this one redemptive story. And the hero who is at the core of it. Now, 
If you'd like, I'd love it for you to pick up one of these ropes and stick it somewhere that it reminds you that every day your challenge is to stay holding firmly to the gospel, remembering you wake up to a battle every day. So you all, that's our first week. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're stimulated to remember the two statements. The Bible is one redemptive story rooted in history. That's the overarching two-year idea. But for this year, to understand the New Testament... We need to see them connected together, both the old and the new. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you for riding in, Jesus. Thank thank you for being willing to pay the cost so that every single one of the people in this room could be a part of this incredible story, could be taken from the domain of darkness and transferred into your kingdom, can be a part of your kingdom, can be heirs of this incredible, incredible family. Would you take tonight and remind us over and over and over again that we find our greatest joy when we make you the center of the story, not ourselves? Would you remind us of our need to stay gripped to this story? To stand firm against those schemes of the devil to rob us from it, to rob it from us. Lord, I've just asked you too to stimulate these people that they could become students of the Bible to unveil things they could never even hardly maybe even dream of without ever going to seminary and studying Greek and Hebrew, just to love your word and observe it, spend time in it. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for giving us the Spirit of God to open our minds to the Scriptures now. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you all.